0: In today's instalment, I talk with Gabrielle Chan, and I'll introduce Gabrielle Chan before our conversation. One of the key issues that came up through our conversation was rural policy development. And this is a big issue in the UK around what might be called rural proofing. And Margaret Austen done some work with a scholar from Newcastle University in the UK, Sadie Shortall, on rural proofing in policy. Now, what Gabrielle is talking about here is a little bit different and distinct to what the UK research is on about. But it gets to the issue of difference in rural communities, which was the other key issue that Gabrielle was talking about. Rural communities are, as we've heard from many of our guests, distinct and different, and they have particular needs. How those needs are not addressed then causes conflict, tension, and disagreement. So maybe if we focused on rural communities in their variety, We might have a different policy development process, and we might have different outcomes for rural communities. Something worth considering, and something that Gabrielle's reflections from her extensive career and personal experiences are really uh, powerful insights that she's able to share with us. Over to our discussion with Gabrielle Chan. So today I have with me author and journalist, Gabrielle Chan. Uh, Gabrielle is a journalist with The Guardian Australia, reporting on rural Affairs, and a couple of years ago now, published the book Rusted Off. Gabrielle, welcome to our discussions.
1: Thanks, Philip.
0: Gabrielle, I know we we talked a little bit about your book uh, earlier on um, ourselves. I was wondering what led you to writing that book?
1: Well, you'd have to know the backstory to know what led me to writing the book and the backstory was I was a, a political journalist in a very city-based environment in Macquarie Street in Sydney and I met a farmer. Ah, and so so do it. The, <laughs> so over the, over the course of that, uh, the next four years, I guess, I started coming to a very small town called Hardin, which is 90 minutes west of Canberra couple of thousand people uh, in the town itself and I was struck by the very different nature of the town and I always thought that I would um, think about writing something Uh, but I'm glad I didn't write at the beginning. I'm glad uh, it's now 25 years, I guess, since I've been here, maybe a little bit less. I moved here in 1996, the same year Pauline Hanson came to Parliament the first time round. <laughs> There's
0: a microphone. Um,
1: which was critical. <laughs> uh, and so I wanted to write something that really sketched out the difference in culture that I saw uh, and that looked at some of the issues that I knew from being a political journalist um, by then in the federal parliamentary press gallery, we weren't, just weren't getting covered in debates, and it surprised me.
0: I think that's um, a really useful overview for the context of the discussions that we've, we've been having. Our focus has been what's distinct about rural context and places, what are some of the issues in these, in these contexts, and particularly how we come to understand the rural as distinct in a society where it is often not considered or an afterthought. That seems to be a motivating factor for you there, that it wasn't considered in the work that you were covering.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are a few kind of iconic, you know, uh, well, not iconic, but hoary old chestnut debates that we see in in politics around rural, uh, and that is, you know, agriculture, everyone in rural Australia is a farmer, Um, you know, the sad songs of decline uh, that we hear all the time, those sorts of debates are really ever present. And I think when journalists particularly run those sorts of stories, people who aren't in rural Australia just switch off and people who are in rural Australia say, hang on, my community's a little more complex than that. Um, can't, you, can't you tell a story that can hold more than one idea in, in the telling of it? And um, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I I suspect we'll go into some of those issues. Um, But that was the the basis of it.
0: I I think that issue there too that you mentioned that everyone was saying my community is more complex, that notion of the distinctiveness of every community and there's not one political notion or one reality in in existence that is a political notion that liberal is one entity. There's that distinctiveness of, of place, isn't it?
1: Definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, I tell the story in the beginning of the book, my, my town, pardon, Murrumburra and it's essentially historically developed uh, as two towns because the original um, white settlement was down at the bottom of the hill. And the, and the, um, when they put the train station in, they changed the name of the town next door and put it at the top of the hill. And that, enmity between those two towns and the arguments over naming that still exist today I think tell that story of place that people feel very bound to one place and you can have a town just this Harden and Murrumburra don't have a border they are one town to an outsider but they are very much two different places to the insiders and that's why the arguments exist and, and you see it everywhere, you know. I've, I've, I've mm. spoken at, at lectures in Orange and the, and the rivalry between, say, Orange and a Bathurst or um, anywhere you go in Australia, there's always that rivalry with the next door town and what they got or what they're better at or what they're not better at. Um, and I think that all speaks to the place. It's so important. And I didn't realise it because I was raised in a city as a global person. I was raised by my parents um, to focus on education and therefore I could exist anywhere in the world. I have no particular um, fondness or nostalgia for any particular place. I have none for the suburb I grew up in. I have not really even for Sydney itself, but now after living for 25 years in this town, it's my home. It's um, and and I know its place, and I know the kind of rhythms of it. And so, if someone comes in and this is the place where I live, I get really upset. And I think that's what we're seeing at a political level: is you know, don't tell me how I am. Don't tell me you know I am one thing. I am many things, but I I stem from this place.
0: It's interesting. Um juncture there that you you refer to inadvertently I, I suspect in terms of being educated in a global cosmopolitan world to live anywhere versus the reality of living in places particularly in non-metropolitan areas so that notion of connection with place is something you observed as being a particularly uh non-metropolitan phenomena it sounds
1: yeah definitely and and you know i'm here at the end of rusted off about exchange programs that big cities have with overseas schools and and I do a lot of traveling and um I think increasingly when I go to another big city if I go from Sydney to London or New York or even Bangkok there's a there's a greater um synthesis of those cultures. So a shopping centre in the middle of London looks much like a shopping centre in in Sydney, whereas the real differences that I'm seeing is between the rural communities. Hmm. And so if that city culture is melding into one more homogenous culture, then the difference between rural cultures, I think, is is the more interesting thing to study and to observe and i think that's what keeps drawing me back to covering rural issues is because the intricacies and the complexities of those communities to me are much more interesting and and weirdly you know rural like rural in many contexts rural journalism is seen as a bit of a backwater like why would you do that really Yeah, yeah yeah i mean you know you work your way through the rural newspapers so that you can get to the bright, shiny city, you know, and you can get to the top of the tree in a big metropolitan centre. But um, actually, I think the most interesting stories, particularly in political journalism right now in Australia, are happening in rural areas. And and all of those things, whether it's land management, uh, whether it's regional city um, rusting off or changing or, or doing something weird at... Elections that the political parties didn't account for, whether it's water management, uh, indigenous um, uh, issues around you know land management, all of these things are happening in rural areas. Climate change is affecting people in rural areas, and that and and that's really driving a lot of things too. So, I mean, I think it's the place to be, actually.
0: <laughs> oh unfortunately i agree totally with you which <laughs> it's certainly the place to be in, uh, in in my research community but i think um as you mentioned it's it's not a uh, not a big deal in educational research or a lot of other social research mm-hmm. indeed in Australia the rural studies field is is very small as i indeed I'm sure you found out as you were researching your, your book yeah
1: yeah and, definitely um,
0: and, and that notion of you know well it's just the, the local schools is not that that big importance all about the achievement over there but those things are all interrelated and, yes. we, and we lose something of our character but we also lose that complexity of the human experience definitely um, I, I was uh, gonna ask you now about some of the issues that you see happening in rural areas and you just listed off listed off a number there um, before so I was going to observe a very similar experience with you around um, the traveling overseas and experiencing the large cities. You know i sort of certainly see the same thing uh, i remember last year when i was in uh, western china i little a bit of work working re- researching western china you know the the main shopping mall in the big district of Xi'an it's like walking down the ma- mall of sydney you know there's sephora and those other shops exactly the same as as we might blame have same
1: brands same everything
0: blame brands, yep. you walk it you go out of town 20 minutes and the distinct difference between the rural culture in, in china there which is like at the at the back of the shops nearly, to the mall is just stark. And the developmental discourse around that is, is huge. It's like we need to change the country folk to the city folk. But the city folk are this sort of global, cosmopolitan, mobile group. It's quite, uh, quite a fascinating shift that's happening. Yeah, climate.
1: and it would be interesting to see, you know, now that you can sit in a rural village and watch Netflix, the same shows on Netflix. The same whether whether that eventually changes the way those rural communities exist. Um, and I, and the other point I would make is that uh, it's often considered when you talk about a contrast like that that you're talking about in China um, that that rural village re- represents old China uh, and the, and the shopping centre represents new China. And it happens all the time in Australia. Oh, this is, you know, pardon is an old way of life, it's an older culture, and eventually, you know, there will be a linear trajectory to um, where we are in the cities today. Whereas it's not like that at all, it's more complex again, um, right. which is what makes your research so interesting is that that I think rural communities are finding ways to, you know, uh, kind of exist in a in a more modern world, but they will be specifically rural ways. They won't be just defaulting to what people are doing in the cities now. Indeed. Does that make any sense?
0: Oh, it, it makes perfect sense. It's like a, a natural evolution that's, that's going kind to of happen because of proximity. You know? here, here are you yeah. and I talking to each other online from two small country towns in New South Wales. Um, oh. I think mine's a bit bigger than yours. Is that a rivalry mm. thing? Uh, yeah. But they, have, they will evolve and change as a result of that connectability, but they mm. still will maintain the character that makes them what they are because people are choosing mm. to live in them for a reason. And this notion yeah. of the city is, is, I think, when we look at these this country towns in this way, the notion of the city becomes even more um, interesting, I guess, because there's this notion of the city as one uniform thing that it represents. The cities are hugely diverse. And yes, they're not, they're not, you know, there's there's a whole range of poverty and crime and drama and congestion and pollution and other things going on. They're not one glorious global entity in and of themselves either. we have seen no. sort of we use them as a catch-all comparison, but we're talking about they're yeah, very small, definitely part are. of.
1: And know. and the perfect example of that was the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite. You know, where everyone. If, um, Rural would vote no, and city would vote yes. And actually, most of rural voted yes, uh, but there were quite distinct pockets in cities that voted no, um, particularly in Sydney. Uh, So yeah, uh, they are complex. And and the other thing is, because I've written the book, I've written people are always saying, you know, oh, you know, the assumption is I think that everything in the city is easy. Everything in the city is not easy. In fact, I think it's somehow a modern miracle that so many people could squeeze into one place and live (laughs) together without more crime. But uh, it's just different, it's just different. And um, I think we should take, you know, take heed of both places in a sense. It's really just a cry for, you know, we are not all cartoon characters out here. So please take it seriously.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Um, before we get onto some of those issues, one thing we're using here to, is the language of the word "rural," and it could be that I started that way, or and introduced you as a rural, um, rural journalist. One thing that's come up in a previous conversation is the, the the use of language and how we often talk, especially government nowadays, talks about "regional" as opposed to to rural. What do you think's going on there?
1: Uh, let's see. Can I just. To, if, if, if I talk to about rural and regional in a, say, in a parliamentary context, the, the way I take regional to mean is the big regional cities like, a, you know, um, say, what, a Dubbo or a...
0: Wagga um, or Tamworth. Or?
1: Wagga, yeah, and rural as in small villages or people who live outside of town, generally on farms, but not always. But I actually just really reverted to country in, okay. in the book. And that was because I think people in the country use country a lot more. They don't talk about, you know, rural, regional. They talk about, you know, someone from the country or from the city. Uh, and I think it also country better capture, encapsulates the cultural things that we're talking about. So... Um the fact that Harden is ninety minutes away from Canberra but has such a different culture is so so bound in that um, rural culture says to me that it's a very country based um, uh, what society as opposed to Canberra which is a very city based society. Uh, and I think the other thing is rural often feels, makes townspeople in country areas feel left out of the debate a bit mm. because a lot of people see it as, you know, oh, you're talking about farmers, when it's not. It's a, I, I prefer country to encapsulate the culture that i tried to write about in the book.
0: I find that the language issue fascinating. You've introduced a whole nother dimension there of uh, of the word country as opposed to to rural. We looked at that mm-hmm. some of the some of the lexical stuff that goes on there with like Don Watson talking about the bush and using certain, you know, historical notions of what that meant in terms of controlling of space, etc. You know, the word out back that we often use, you know, the out out the back. So this this language is really important. So I find that really fascinating the way you you've gone through that to the to the the townsfolk versus the um the non townsfolk. One thing I think is really problematic in particularly in education is people are more automatically think well then rural kids are farm kids so if we talk about farming they will all understand it there's only about 2,000 farmers in Australia aren't there I think the last data was so there's very few farm kids on, on land um,
1: well they call it they, it's farm businesses farm so business. there's 88,000 farm businesses but it's dropping pretty rapidly i think when i started looking it was 120 or something yeah yeah, but i I take your point completely this kind of um assumptions around who is rural and and what constitutes rural uh and Yeah, i
0: I, I talk to kids in towns and country schools who yeah, I'm using your language now, who, um, you know, have never been on a farm or maybe they've gone a couple of times to their friends, one of their friends is on a farm. But just the whole – it's not a language they understand. So, yeah, But I their think.
1: mindset is very much country, isn't
0: it? Yeah, their mindset isn't city.
1: Yeah. But their yeah. mindset
0: isn't farming either. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Quite, um, quite fascinating. Like.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: So big issues. You've talked there about um, land management, um, politics, um, climate change.
1: Health, education, yeah. so many issues.
0: Yeah. Why? Why are, we, why are there so many issues? Can you put a finger on it?
1: Well, because I think policy uh, development in Australia has increasingly become one-size-fits-all policy. And I'll give you an example. So that, um, the water debate that I covered in the seat of Farrah, which is Susan Lee's seat in the last federal election, I went down there and, as you know, water is a wicked issue. Water management is a wicked issue in Australia, particularly through the Murray-Darling Basin. And I talked to all these different people who had all lots of different points of view. But I talked to one bloke um, called Harold Clapham. In, he was based in Deniliquin. And he, he said that the big change that I've seen since I was a kid was that government... Officers were in Deniliquin. So they, that the water office, uh, the department that was in charge of water, would have an office in these towns right along the way. And he said, I would go to school with the kids of the public servants. We would go and play football at the weekend. And there would happen all, all of these conversations would happen in and out of personal um, family stuff into you know political debate into policy areas into how that water was going to be managed and he said that the dislocation by moving government offices out of those towns has changed the way that people um, that policy makers particularly perceive things so it's created this um, economies of policy by economies of scale, if you like, where where you just make this policy. School halls was one example. Um, <laughs> where, you, where you just drop it over, a, over the whole of Australia and there's no capacity for the community that it's dropped on from a great height to go along to the government and say, great idea, I'd love the money for the school hall, but actually... We don't need a school hall, what, will we, what we really need is, you know, something else, is a learning centre or a something, whatever it is that your community wants. And so we've created this kind of monster of um, generic policies that are unresponsive to the communities they're meant to serve. And that makes people cranky because it, they don't make, it doesn't make sense to them. I was talking to a farmer this morning again about water and he said, you know, everyone in my town, when it rains like this, knows where the water goes. They know the path of the flood. So then he gets the call from the public servant in Sydney saying, you know, we're we're making this policy decision because this has happened in your local creek area. And he said, that hasn't happened. You know, this this can't happen. That's not the way the water runs. It doesn't run along that route. But it's the dislocation of the public servant into Sydney from the local community that means he doesn't understand the system. He can't understand the system. It's not really his fault. But he just can't understand the system. I think that happens all the time across many different portfolios. And so so country people are left thinking, well, you know, this is the government that's meant to serve me and a public service that's meant to serve me, but it's not taking into account me as a, as an individual or my community as an individual community. And I think so much of the disruption around politics has been about recognition. Mm. You know, I think it's a, it's the human existence. It's something very fundamental in the human existence to have people say, I recognise you and I recognise the place you're from and therefore I will work with you on whatever job we're trying to do, knowing who you are. I mean, a handshake is recognising a person. It's very fundamental to the human condition and I think policy has just, got so far away from recognising individuals and individual communities that it's making people cranky. And they might not articulate it like that, but that's my observation is that many people have very many examples of, you know, how uh, they wanted something to solve an issue in the, in the um, community and they told the government what the thing that could resolve it was. Uh, and the government says, "Sorry, we, we're not flexible enough to do that." At the same time, as government's exhort, exhorting us to be flexible, yeah. us to be agile, and you know, take business opportunities and take you know, social show
0: your, opportunities. Show so, your entrepreneurial capacity.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, it's but irresponsible. government is, is a behemoth; it, it can't respond. And I'll just give you one example just to flesh it out. So the Example I, w- I got from the Regional Australia Institute um, then boss uh, Jack Archer was an Indigenous community, so there was a lot of violence in this community at night because there was a bit of clan clan violence between various families, and the community leadership got together and said to the government, um, well, the, firstly the government said, well, what we'll do is we'll get you a bus so that we can, pe you you. Community members can get on a bus home and they'll be safe and they won't be um, subject to possible violence on the way home. And the community leadership said, we don't need a bus, we just need some money for mediation. Instead of giving us a bus, give us the money for the bus to put into mediation between the two um, families and that would solve the issue. But they basically could, government couldn't... Couldn't couldn't do do that. Not the bucket of money that money's coming out of. They basically said to the community, What colour bus do you want? And uh, for, it, it's just frustrating for communities. And so it's no wonder that they get cranky and vote for. Um,
0: especially um, in the context of, of buckets of money being used in not necessarily the ways they were defined in recent um, events in the news. Yeah. Governments.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we won't, <laughs> yeah,
0: won't, go, won't go there. <laughs> Uh, you can ask me so many things from what you, you were just said there, but I've um, mindful I don't want to take too much of your t- of your time. There's um, bodies of research around knowledge exchange and that issue of water and how it travels, which I think is really fascinating. Mm. And examples around local knowledge is a whole range of um, service provisions and decision making that something we need to work on. And policy policy work coming out of Europe around rural proofing, which is in writing, work with rural communities that I think are, are fascinating. So there's some really interesting avenues of of um, thinking and policy thinking that you've, you've opened up there that link to a whole range of things overseas, which are really, really cool. Um, and rather than going to other issues, I want to do the, do the thing at the journalist thing, I guess, and ask you, well, in this context of this, um, you know, rationalization, which has led to the the lack of responsiveness of policy. We've had a a number of the the federal governments and state governments have had the party that seems to be representing the country as a member of the coalition making decisions what how's that happen
1: that's the 99 million dollar question
0: okay so i'm not the only one wondering that okay good
1: not at all uh i think we'll put that uh, in there
0: we don't know basket then
1: (laughs) i really don't know i really don't know why why that is i think um, I think the structure that that party has chosen, um, the National Party has chosen to be in coalition in and outside of government, is uh, mitigates against uh, their own policy development. Uh, if there's one frustration that I have, out of all is the lack of policy development for rural people. Mm. Um, and part of the reason why I have written Rusted Off and why I will write my next book is to write, to draw together some of those policy ideas in a way that people might understand why they're so important for the whole of Australia, not just for rural Australia, because so many issues are developing in rural areas that will impinge on uh, metropolitan spaces as well. Um, So back to the structure of the coalition, the National Party began, as a, as, a, as you know, as a, a farmer coalition to get um, agricultural issues and rural issues on the table. And some of the divide issues that um, you would know as well, are also not, they're not new. They're, you can pull any paper from the ni- early 1900s and you'll find uh, rural people um, upset because they haven't been taken into account. But I think that's generally got worse as the drift has happened towards cities. Um, But to me, a more agile country party would be doing, at at the very least, what the WA National Party is doing, and that is standing apart in opposition to develop policy ideas and then coming together, if that's what they want, with the Liberal Party uh, at a point where the Liberal Party has enough, um, has enough members to form government. I just, I just don't see it as viable to weld yourself to another party that has very different interests at heart um, that being the Liberal Party uh, because it, it necessarily stomps on rural policy.
0: Yeah. It's this is why I can't get my head around. Yeah. Mm. So I think we haven't gone into a whole range of issues we've, we've mentioned a number of issues in, in passing and I don't want to take uh, more of your time than I have. It sounds like the, the, uh, the way to address the, the issues, which we've mentioned, health, education, water, yeah. food, that relationship that, you know, the country provides for the city is to think about rural development policy. And that doesn't mean yeah. rural development. It means developing, policy that has a rural focus. That seems mm. to be the missing link that might provide some more uh, more engagement, and some more positive outcomes.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'll give you a, a number of examples. Um, there has been a lot of good committee work being done, um, cross-committee, but I think uh, part of the problem is Australia really <laughs> doesn't know what it wants from its rural landscapes, that there are so many competing um, wishes or ideas about what rural policy, sh- what, what rural landscape should be. Um, some people think, and increasingly you are seeing this with climate change, think that rural communities should all move to the city and we grow food in vertical farms and then you can just give over the whole landscape to trees. Now, the end point of that is you've got a whole lot of unmanaged country that, um, what happens to it? I don't know, fire, ferals and weeds. Uh, it turns back to that. Um, and we know that Australia, Australia's land has been managed, um, at least for 60,000 years. So, I think there's, a, there's all these competing ideas about w- what rural Australia should be, and I have never heard it articulated from the, from the National Party or anyone else about, about what it is we think rural Australia should be in a changing climate in the 21st century.
0: Well, there's, a, um, there's a challenge for all of us to, uh, to take up trying to articulate, I guess. <laughs>
1: Yes, well, that's what I'm trying to articulate in the next book. So, oh. I mean, but, we'll have, to, we'll but, have to
0: book you in for another conversation when that comes out. <gasps>
1: yeah, other policies. Like, we don't have a food policy. No. We've had a run on loo paper in the last two days, and you can see how quickly a kind of panic can set in, and luckily it's about loo paper and not, you know, milk mm. or bread. But what, we don't have a national food plan. No. You know, there's a lot of work being done in Europe, in, in the UK, particularly in the UK, by the UK Conservative government about their national food strategy. We have no national food strategy. We no. have no uh, laying out of what we want to see from uh, the way farmers um, manage land or rural communities exist in the landscape, the, um, their role. None of this policy work is being done. I don't know why it
0: goes back to a question of earlier. We don't know why yeah.
1: we don't know
0: um, why. Yeah. Well, um, Gabrielle, I, I think there's many things we could continue to discuss, but I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll let you enjoy that. Um, well, welcome rainfall in the background.
1: Yeah. It's fantastic.
0: And thank you so much for chatting with us today.
1: Pleasure Philip.
0: And there you have our conversation with Gabrielle Chan. So generous with her time and ideas. And a little bit of politics around uh, representing rural electorates thrown in there as a bit of a, a contextual bonus. It is an issue I struggle to get my head around, but I guess it's a good thing why I'm an academic and not someone trying to
1: understand such things. That'll do for our podcast in this installment.